here's the plan. Stage one, prove that they can do a booze cruise. Makes sense. Phase two, let's like franchise the booze cruise. I'm like, okay, makes sense. Phase three is merchandise the pesto torts that they serve on the, the booze cruise and put them yeah. into grocery stores. <laughs> and phase four is go to Vegas and build an indoor booze experience on a boat. A theme park. It just was it's like... A theme park. You guys haven't heard of the four-part method to effectively <laughs> having a business? Have an industry in everything? <laughs> And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hi, everyone. And John. How are you doing, everybody? So I feel like the ocean is having such a moment right now. So I know way more about the Little Mermaid origin story, the social dynamics of orca pods, and honestly, the Titanic than I did like a month or two ago. So to keep on that theme and the fact that this is another Bite Shark Tank rewatch podcast, we have three podcasts that will tickle your nautical fancy. But before we deep dive into each one, we decided not to be shellfish and and to share an ad. You're welcome. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for Startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together. So you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kinds of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. So first in the tank, we have Long Wharf Supply Co. And Long Wharf comes to us from founders and siblings, Lauren and Mike. And they're asking $375,000 for 15% of their company, which is a $2.5 million valuation. Now, despite it being a long title, the cause marketing behind Long Wharf is interesting. So the problem that the company is trying to solve is that ocean plastics, they're accruing. Apparently, when you put oyster shells into landfills, they become very toxic, which seems like par for the course for trash. So they're trying to solve both of these problems by making their signature fisherman sweaters, which are a blend of oyster shells, wool, and water bottles. So thinking about Long Wharf, thinking about our product and our founders and some of this initial information information. Thoughts on this company? I love a good cause-based marketing effort and like really tapping into that. I think the initial price point that they got into makes sense for just all the added benefit. And I could see a lot of people actually purchasing something like this. It's a fisherman's sweater. Very stylish. Yeah. Very stylish. Okay. And then I guess my other question is if you have an oyster allergy, can you wear it? Ooh, Ooh, that's good a great question. question. Oh, mm-hmm. Ariel, I never even considered that. I don't know. Like each sweater, what does it have? Like two water bottles and three oyster shells in it? It's like not like, do you know how many sweaters they're going to have mm-hmm. to manufacture to clean up the two mile circle of plastic doom in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? I'm not saying they shouldn't try. And I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm just saying this feels like uh, maybe a little bit more performative cause marketing mm, than actually no. having a large scale impact. 
No. Yes. You can't expect them to clean up everything. So if they formed like a coalition of different cause-based like brands for like environmentalism, that could be really cool. But I don't think having the expectation like that is fair. A single company isn't going to single-handedly save the ocean, John. Yeah, John. Yeah, it's John. True. But I'm We're just mean saying. mermaids today. <laughs> But I mean, I just want to be clear here. Like, you know, they've created this product. It's true. It definitely is attributed to some causes and people like causes. And if you're going to buy a fisherman sweater, why not buy one that is made out of recycled plastic, assuming it's comfortable? And it's cute. Like the clothing's actually really cute. My criticism is not that they are trying to solve this problem. It's that the way that they are actually deploying the technology they've built is just low scale. Mm-hmm, and right. if they really said they care about it and they really wanted to lean into this cause thing, it wouldn't be about making sweaters and cotton shirts because I think that just ends up being kind of performative. Mm. It would be much more about getting that fabric to be as incredible as possible and as affordable as possible so that lots and lots and lots of manufacturers would use it. Yeah, that's really smart. As much as I like to gang up on John, you definitely have a point. So yeah, the thing is, <laughs> Yeah, yeah <Jory>. Ariel. <laughs> so I think that like digging into these numbers, I definitely see where you're going with this because we look at the cost to make and it's between like $23 and $33, right? But they are retailing for $128 to $158. And for just most people, even if you care about like the oyster problems. That's a a really expensive single-use piece of clothing. I think this product is more suited towards a niche audience. I could see people buying this and be like, this aligns with my lifestyle. Maybe folks that have a little more of an expendable income. They're already Mm -hmm. driving Teslas because they care about the environment. Like, I think this is a product that they either need to go super niche or to your point, John, like the the shopping retail clothing space is so competitive. There's so many big players in there. And the fact that they spend so much money to produce compared to their competitors. Yeah, they're paying 40 bucks to acquire a customer right now. And so like, and that number is yeah. only going to go up because they've done the cheap stuff already. It's just going to actually keep going up. They're at a premium price point. And so like their audience is already somewhat limited and they're trying to, you know, intersect that premium price point segment with a cause marketing effort, which is going to segment it even further. And the point is just like, I think there's just a pretty low cap on how many of these sweaters they actually could sell a year. So it just feels like pretty low scale to me. And they're asking for a huge valuation. They're asking for a $2.5 million valuation. And it just starts to, it does starts to not add up. I was curious about the valuation too, because I wonder, did they base it off of like major retail, like in the clothing space for like typical valuation? Like, I, I feel like they did not factor in all of the nuances that come with their product. Yeah. Well, as we've long established on this show, valuations are made up. <laughs> for but, sake. Uh, Money's there, not real. <laughs> <laughs> there are some ways to think about it. There's a couple factors that I think go into deciding how to think about evaluation. One is just like, are the investments that are being made likely to uh, produce an ongoing stream of revenue? Or has the revenue that has already been, you know, gotten have to be replicated every single year. And that's the challenge with something like this company is like, sure, they've done half a million dollars in sales of this. Unless people are coming back and buying those sweaters again, which is probably not happening, they are going to have to go out and fight really hard to get another $500,000 in sweater sales. And so unlike a company that's more of like a subscription service where like somebody signs a contract, I can pretty much guarantee some revenue is going to keep coming in without you having to keep going and acquiring it. So that's one thing. Another is margin structure and all these things. And so, you know, all that kind of adds up. And I think their valuation is much more likely to be in kind of like maybe the 1x revenue. And so they're asking for probably five times what 
they were actually probably fairly worth. Um, mm -hmm. So it would take a it would take a a lot for a shark to want to invest at that valuation. I think the return would be pretty tough to get. Yeah. It's not guaranteed that they would be able to sustain. So as you're talking about expanding the markets, one of the things that came up was you have Peter, who is in the fashion space, and he brings up that one of the ways that he sees this potentially growing in terms of audience is like bringing it into the global economy. And that was really interesting to me because it seems like they were already facing sort of some issues with scale on the domestic market, but then he was already ready to be like, okay, let's take this global because there's other rich people global. So my question was, when does a company know when it's supposed to go into a global market and pivot as a strategy that they should consider and start going abroad versus when they should just hone in on like getting it good in one country before trying to do many others? I feel like this is an instance of proof of concept, and we hear the sharks like say this a lot. I think before even considering expanding to, you know, an international market, which comes with its own like fees for logistics and distribution, yeah. like if you can't prove that this can be a success in your current target audience, in your current geographic area that you're serving, probably not the best idea, but I could be wrong. John would know a lot more about that. Talk to us about global, John. <laughs> yeah. That's like his whole thing. It's almost like he's an expert. Yeah. I do global marketing. Okay. Here's the thing. Global's just complicated. Mm -hmm. It's actually just adds a lot of cost and a lot of complexity. Like if you are shipping a good, you have to pay tariffs mm -hmm. and taxes mm -hmm. and you oh. have to arrange for shipping. Like I once bought a sweater from a company in Ireland mm -hmm. Through that's the a good internet. wool blend. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was. Oh, it was yeah, a, that's like good quality stuff. Yep. Honestly, it was a sweater vest. <gasps> you know, I thought that sweater vests were having a moment. Next episode, John. Yes, you please. want me to wear my sweater vest next episode? Please. <laughs> well, I definitely could wear one because I have two of them because I ordered one in each size. And then I realized that I had to somehow ship the sweater back to Ireland. And DHL wanted to charge me more than the sweater cost to just ship it back because international <sighs> yeah. shipping is freaking expensive because you have to put it yeah. on an airplane or a boat, speaking of oceans, and get it back home. <laughs> so it's just like really complex actually to deal with. And so you could think about going global if you had a partner like our guest shark who could handle all that complexity for you. I think the logistics. But like I think the operational cost, effort, mind share and everything of trying to like figure out global as a retailer is a pretty big challenge. Unless you had a partner, like I wouldn't try and tackle it. Would you say it's fair to say it's easier to go global for non-material goods, so like technology or SaaS? You know, one of the great things about inbound marketing is that like it doesn't have borders, right? You create content mm -hmm. and people all yeah. over the world consume that content because the internet's global and people are drawn to you because of that. And so it's certainly easier, I think, to attract demand in a global market if you, you know, are, are publishing lots of content and, you know, distributing through the internet. There's still obviously like challenges going global with like selling software um, or technology because you need to be able to sell things in a particular Privacy region, laws. there's a lot That's of laws and entities yeah. <laughs> and money collection and stuff like that that get complicated. But Peter seems to be all in on this, like, we can take this global, has this like moonshot vision. But Mark's like, look, your retail price is like way too high. You have no path to scale. And they were like, well, we're working on this cotton blend. But then as soon as Mark was like, well, do you have a plan to sell like 5 million t-shirts? They were like, uh, no. And then Lori's like, based on your answer, I am also out. Peter ultimately did try to get an offer on the table. He had offered 375000 for 45%. But, you know, I do have to have respect for the founders because walking into the tank with 
an idea of how much is too much to give away, even though the sharks are like these shiny penny, like when to not sacrifice your company. Ultimately, no deal was made despite the global lure, if you will, dangled in front of them. (laughs) I will ask, this was a episode that was in 2021. They tried to talk about their COVID shift and then like the sharks were like, we don't care. But we're in 2023. So I have to ask, knowing kind of the struggles of the company, do you actually think it still exists as a sweater company? I bet they're still going. He seemed committed. He seemed like he was going to keep going. I think so, too. I don't agree with Mark's comment that it's out of the price range. So spoiler alert. Yes, they are very much still a company. You can still get a long wharf sweater. And as of January 2023, they've seeded over 350,000 oysters. And they have recycled over 60,000 pounds of oyster shells. Next in the tank, we have another fish-related product, and that is Animated Lure, which is very self-descriptive. I love that for us. So this is brought to us by Chauvin and Kantz, and these two founders are asking for $325,000 for 10% in their company, which is a $3.25 million valuation. And their product is a rechargeable robotic lure for fish. So unlike traditional lures, which can be annoying to attach and live bait, which is you know, it's kind of gross. It's like worms and stuff. This product, it looks like a fish. It swims like a fish, but it isn't a fish. It so, doesn't sound like a fish. It's not. It's a robot. It can hold a charge from between 45 to 75 minutes, depending on the type you buy. And, you know, it's just like a fish you put on a hook and it looks like a fish and fish are dumb. So they eat it. So it looks amazingly like a fish. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I saw it in the package on the show and like, oh, it's this fish and it's got a battery and it swims. But in and I was the like, water. This thing is going to suck. It was so impressive. It was so good looking. I was like, wow, it really looks like a fish. fish. And I think Kevin caught on to that too because he was like, you could just put this in a restaurant as like decor. An aquarium. (laughs) You would think it's a real fish. Yeah. So what are we thinking about this pitch and this product? Any fisher people in the room? I have never been fishing in my entire life. Um, John? I've been fishing. I'm really bad at fishing. I think most people are really bad at fishing. I think fishing is a lot of sitting around and not catching fish. And you know what I think would make fishing more fun? Catching fish. Catching more fish. Yeah. And I think that this lure might do that. I think this lure might catch Mm -hmm. a lot of fish because it really looks like a fish. And so if you could double my fish catching on an outing by using this, I definitely would consider buying it and definitely consider using it. I disagree. I think the worst part of fishing is putting the worms on the hook, right? I've never done seawater fishing. I've only done freshwater like in ponds and lakes and things. And so worms are like pretty typical or like the weird clay bait, which is smells awful. But skewering the worms is a traumatic experience. It's got to be one of the worst ways to go, honestly. Right. Right. Just like hooked Mm. and then dangled in front of something that will definitely try to eat you. So, you know, like having an alternative to that, I don't even fish all that much. But my husband wants to learn to fish. I grew up in Vermont, know how to fish. Maybe this is a product to look into because, hey, having an alternative to something that's super gross about this, amazing. The biggest question that needs to be figured out with this product is will fishermen accept it or not? Mm. Or will fishermen look at it and say, you're cheating? I feel like they're very set in their ways. I think they're very set in their ways. And using a robot to catch fish might be considered uh, unpure 
or uh, yeah, they, like you were, couldn't have this in a competition for sure. There was a big fish controversy recently. Did you hear about this? Mm-hmm. There's big fishing competitions for money, mm-hmm. and one of the fishermen was caught having stuffed a bunch of weights into his fish. Oh yes, I've heard. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Oh. And they like someone caught it on video, and they cut the fish open, and these like weights poured out of it, and like it, it got confrontational. And so like I don't think the fishing community takes kindly to cheaters, and I don't know if this would be considered cheating. But that brings up a good point. Is this a good product that's just marketed to the wrong audience? I could see kids, for example, like if you're trying to teach your kid how to fish, maybe you have, you know, a child that just doesn't like to touch dirt and worms and stuff. What is the market share for people looking for bait? Their sales year to date, like $247,000 worth of sales, projecting $500,000 by the end of the year. That seems like a lot. I think the fishing industry is huge. Like, have you been to a Bass Pro Shop? That's true. I mean, clearly the margin on this stuff are popping off because they've got like live fishing pools and like Mm -hmm. it's like an experiential store. Spend hours there. I think there's a lot of money to be made in fishing. And so I actually think this product could do incredibly well. The question is just like, can they get into Bass Pro Shop? And if they do get into Bass Pro Shop, are they going to get all their margins eaten away or are they going to be able to actually make any money? And I think that's the reason they were on the show is they kind of just needed a shark to like navigate that because I don't think they were in a position to pull that off themselves. And so that's kind of why they wanted a shark and they just kind of couldn't land it. I think most of the sharks felt like they didn't actually have connections to that industry, know it very well, understand the margin structures. Mr. Wonderful was the only one who made an offer and... Shocker, it was a royalty deal. Which I'm not surprised. I think they probably could have afforded the royalty mm-hmm. given the margins that they had. Like they're selling at 70 to 75% gross margins and he wanted a $3 royalty. Probably would have taken like five points off their margin or something. So they might've been able to afford it, but you know, it was too rich for them. So you seem to be saying that this will only succeed in retail and in certain retail spaces versus like in the online space. So like, how can you determine when something's a better fit for retail versus online marketing and online selling? Well, I think the easiest way to figure out if it is a fit for online is whether or not there is organic demand for Mm -hmm. your product or category, number one. Number two is figure out what it would cost to buy demand digitally for your product or category and basically like triangulate those to largely figure out like if you have a shot to be competitive there. If there's organic demand for it and you can win that demand and if it's pretty affordable to buy demand, then like I would just focus on online and go as hard as I could until that ran out because, you know, you'll make so much less money in retail. My sense is it's a very competitive category and it's probably a very expensive category. And so I would guess that they're going to need a partner there. I think my biggest thing is they need to have a core audience that is advocating for this product. And they don't really have that to even have that organic demand yet because it's such Mm -hmm. a new concept within this sport that's been around for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, ever since arguably the beginning of time. So I think there's going to be a lot of challenges there. Okay. So I have a second question though. And it was based on something that you had brought up. I think, John, you mentioned that it was very clear throughout the pitch that they were coming on onto the tank in need of connections to succeed, right? And that brought me to the question, one, when should you be like searching for connections to succeed versus making the most of what you got? And are there any pros and cons to each approach? And then also, they seem to be catering to the shark's ego. Like you have all the connections and we don't. That's why we need you. But it actually was a detriment where it made it seem like they were less business savvy and couldn't find the connections. Worst case scenario. Also, at what point do you position the sharks as like the knowledge and the needed asset 
at the risk of making yourself sound like bad business people? That's a good two-parter question, Jory. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little complex. Let's break it down. <laughs> I would just say I feel a little bad for those guys because I think they were stating the truth. The known the truth. obvious truth. Mm -hmm. The known truth, which is that if you have connections, it makes it easier to succeed growing a product. And then Robert just was like, that's the wrong attitude. If I had had that yeah. attitude, I would have failed. And I was like, come on, you're misinterpreting what they're saying. They're literally just right. saying like one of the reasons we want a shark is connections, is which because is because you're connected to this industry and have experience mm -hmm. and that would help us scale because we're working full-time jobs right now mm -hmm. and we don't know actually how to grow this business and scale it. We've actually put a lot of our own money into it and we would really like it to have a great outcome. And if we could share in that outcome with you because you're connected to this industry, then that would be incredible for both of us, wouldn't it? And so I feel like that just kind of got taken out of context a little bit. I felt bad for them. It was blown out of the water because we definitely have had founders that have said, hey, I need more connections in the industry. I feel bad because I think they actually had a pretty good product that I actually think could grow pretty well. Mm -hmm. I think they should have been more thoughtful coming in. And I think they should have been more thoughtful on a couple things. The first thing is their valuation. They asked for way too much money. Mm -hmm. The second thing is which sharks could actually help them and how. I think most of the sharks looked at this and are like, I don't know fishing, so like I can't help you. And they should have just been proactive at actually like helping the sharks mentally work through how they could help them by framing their problems correctly. And I think that if they'd done those two things differently, I think they could have had a deal hook, line, and sinker. Hook, line, and sinker. So we are on a roll, like a sushi roll. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, it's like it's good to want to seek connections, but it's all about framing on like how you're going about like trying to get those connections. Kevin had, I feel like Kevin does this sometimes where he offers a deal and then he gets upset when they counter and goes out and then he's like, just kidding, I'm back in. So we had a moment like that. And ultimately, there was a deal made with Kevin for the $325,000 with a $3 royalty until a million dollars was paid back on top of 10% equity. So part of the reason he went out was he's like, I'm not just doing equity. But then he was like, but I still want some of it. <laughs> okay, Kevin. So after a deal was made, the company very much continued to sell these lures, right? The problem with technology sometimes is that you have this innovative product and other companies are like, I too can build that. Oh, I can no. make a fish robot look a like a fish. So they have been, yep, this is one of the cases where they didn't get a patent. There was no talks of patents. And they have been slammed with multiple copycats, especially on Amazon. So that is unfortunate. But the company does still exist. They're still swimming soundly with a net worth of over $3 million. So you mm. can still get your animated lure, but you can now get many variations thereof. So next time you go fishing, John try it out. So last in the tank, we have Corks Away Wine Adventures. And Corks Away comes to us from Nathan and Shane, and they're asking for $105,000 for 20% in their business, which is a $525,000 valuation. Now, Corks Away initially is pitched to us as like a hour and a half wine cruise, right? So Essentially, like you go on the ship and you drink a bunch of wine with your friends and you socialize and then they drop you safely back on shore. So it's a bit of like a, a tourist experience kind of product. But thinking about our product and our pitch, any initial thoughts about Corks Away? And then I promise we'll get into like the other business models. This was one of the greatest 
And by greatest, I mean Worst. most no. awful. <laughs> but greatest bad. <laughs> bitches and Shark bad. Tank is I could not believe what happened here. My jaw dropped so many times. These guys basically come on and as Jory said, they're like, we've got a booze cruise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a well-liked booze cruise. And we have a four-stage expansion plan. And everyone's like, Growth plan. All right, let's we hear love your it. plan. Tell us about your plan. Here's yep. the plan. Stage one, prove that they can do a booze cruise. Makes sense. Phase two, let's like franchise the booze cruise. I'm like, okay, makes sense. Phase three is merchandise the pesto torts that they serve on the, the booze cruise and put them into yeah. grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And phase four is go to Vegas and build an indoor booze experience on a boat. A theme park. It just was it's like... It's a theme park. You guys haven't heard of the four-part method to effectively <laughs> having a business? Have an industry and everything? <laughs> I just couldn't believe the audacity uh, of these guys to come in and be like, our pesto tort is so good that after we franchise our booze cruises, we're actually going to like put it in Trader Joe's and Trader Joe's is going to go wild. Sell the corks away (laughs) pesto tort at scale. (laughs) Like, I was so confused. I think they just need direction, honestly. I love the concept. There's obviously a few flaws in the way that they have the models, which we'll get into that. Yes, Mm -hmm. a few. Okay. A few leaks in that ship. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think this could be great beyond just tourism. Like, think bachelorette parties. Mm. Okay, so you're, like, into the booze cruise bit. There's a reason that booze cruise is a known term. People love booze cruises. Booze cruises are everywhere. What makes the corks away? This is no connection to wine. No connection to pesto. It's literally just like it's a it's like an, it's a mediocre name. I don't think I would I would even want to go in Corks Away. Oh, the name is horrible. The fact that they came out with a sign like it wasn't even a logo or anything. It was just the sign of like a ship steer wheel, it was a steering wheel. Yeah, and it just said Corks Away, which doesn't say anything. So yeah, I have a lot of problems with the branding. What would you brand a booze cruise then? Like, oh my okay, god! Like you just start it today. What's your name? I don't know. I would make it like fun. Maybe I'm catering this too heavily towards like a female crowd, but I would be like, this is our bestie package. This is our proposal package. This is our bachelorette package. I would just make it so much more fun. And then based off of the occasion in which someone would take a booze cruise and offer Mm -hmm. very curated experiences based off of that. They failed in their main point of offerings was, well, it varies depending on the type of alcohol. I think they should instead think about it as like, what is the occasion? What is the moment? What is the celebration? And that makes it so much easier to package up what you're trying to sell. As you were talking, I thought about two names that I was already like, I could start a two-part business, right? Sips and Sales, which goes to our like more like feminine crowd. We love that. You know, bachelorette parties, like eat your heart out. And then two are like more manly, adventurous. I was like ruddered faced, right? Because it's like you get like really flushed when you drink a lot of alcohol. So it's just like a two seconds. before ruddered faced, definitely. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you were on to something with the... Uh... Sips and sales was definitely a highlight. That's fair. No, but sips like, and ships. Sips and ships. Oh my gosh. Sips and ships is great. Amazing. I think we're all on the same page in terms of like stage one booze cruise doable. Right. Branding can be fixed. There is no branding to rebrand. Sorry. There's nothing. They have nothing. They they are running a booze cruise, which is fine. There's nothing proprietary about their booze cruise concept Fair. or their food or their wine or their <laughs> logo or anything. It is literally just some guys who run a booze cruise, which awesome. Yeah, they made $250,000 in a year. they have no visual unique idea. Identity. They just run booze cruises. That's like, that's great. That's so amazing. There's nothing to sell here. There's no business. This is no business. There's no business. Wow. 
I think if you decorate the boats and stuff and have extra pillows and like make it certain themes for like the certain events, there is an opportunity. People like to take pictures on boats. You just set up a cute little Instagram, TikTok like setup and like, you know, people will want to go on a booze cruise. Here's what we've established. We all love the idea of going on a booze cruise. There's all sorts of opportunities to come up with booze cruise concepts that will attract different audiences. The question is, how is Corks Away going to actually scale into phase two, which is going beyond being a single booze cruise? But what we haven't established is like what would make them unique. They would either have to say if they wanted to go in a franchise model that they could establish enough brand around Corks Away that when people think booze cruise, they will think Corks Away. And so if you buy a franchise license to corks away, people will come to you, you'll get more demand, or they would have to win the internet and become an aggregator of leads for people who want to go on booze cruises. And they would have to get top ranking and know how to like bid and and sell booze cruise tickets, essentially, in a way that they could drive a ton of demand. And then maybe they could actually build a business on it. But I think just having a concept of like, we serve wine and a pesto tort on a boat, is not something that is defensible or franchisable. No, it's not a reason to believe in this business. The value clearly haven't tried the pesto yet. (laughs) So I did do a quick search for booze cruises since I found out that this is a whole industry a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, because I was curious, like, is the advertising space like super competitive or like what'd you find? What'd you find? It seems very city based. Mm. So I think in the right franchise model. There's not one brand that really rises to the top, right? So there is an opportunity for someone to be a category leader, but I think they would have to really think about franchising across multiple locations. Like, I Mm. think that's going to be a very crucial piece for them. So if you had to, like, name the core qualities of company that they would need to have, like, totally solid before even considering something like stage two franchising, like, what would that be? So one thing that you mentioned was, like, super clear and unique branding. Yes. Anything else? They need to have an identity because if you're Mm -hmm. going into market and you're just like, we want to be like an everyman type situation, like we talk about brand archetypes, like there's a few archetypes that want to focus on solving for every single use case. And I think we kind of see that in our founders and just how sporadic their ideas are. I think having something to stand out is going to be really, really important for them. I think this is just a local market. This is local. And so what they could do is they could focus on absolutely dominating their local market. Mm -hmm. And I bet they would make a ton of money doing that. And they could do it potentially under the brand Corks Away. And I do think if they leaned into themes and stuff like that, it would go a long way. But I think essentially this is just a local market business trying to get people to go on boat tours. These points resonated with our sharks as well. The sharks, for all their business savvy, were like, I cannot see how you're going to scale this. I don't know why you're going into theme parking in Vegas, much less. It just didn't seem like an investable opportunity where they could like, for all that the founders were like quirky and fun, that they were going to actually get their money back. Despite being interested in like this idea of a booze cruise and expanding their portfolios to include one and having fun with the founders, it just didn't seem investable. Yeah. Can we talk about their model? Yes. Because I think that was a piece that I was just very intrigued by. So it sounds like they essentially are leasing the ships to like someone who wants to run it has to pay them for the ship rental. Is that? I thought they were like packaging it with the boat, though. My impression was that they were selling the Corks Away boat to a skipper Mm -hmm. for 
$175,000, but my impression is like the boat sale deed went with it mm. because they were talking about like the boat cost for the company would be like $35,000, but then they would sell it at this like massive markup. But I thought that was to keep, not to like continuously pay. I thought the franchise was mostly the business plan and the brand mm, yeah. because I thought they were trying to sell yeah. it to people who had boats with capacity. The problem they were trying to okay. solve yeah. and the market they were trying to tap into was that if you own a boat and are a skipper, any hour that there are not people paying you to be on that boat is money you're losing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, oh, maybe if you franchise this business plan and this brand, it will increase the amount of people that will be on your boat. And like, I think that's what they're trying to pitch to these skippers. The problem is they want to charge a lot of money for it. Right. And it's not so distinctive an idea. And it's not going to drive so much demand for the skipper that's definitely not going to sell that many business plans. Is this more of a business that could potentially work with like the yachting industry, for example? And hear me out on this. Like someone's considering purchasing a yacht. You go out on the sea. It's part of like the sales process of like getting you into it. But they also provide like the booze cruise service. So it provides mm. people with an opportunity that have, you know, the income to like purchase something like that to actually be on that ship, you know, and have the chance to like get a feel for it. I just feel like there's something there from more of an industry play, which is why I'm not entirely out on this one. But they would have to be like a wine manufacturer. They would, they, yeah, you'd have to still, be like a caterer then. If you have a boat, do you know how you run a booze cruise? You go to Binnie's and you buy four bottles of wine. Cheap wine. Oh, oh. And a jug of pesto. Ew. And you serve it to people. That's a booze cruise. Okay. There's nothing. Really on that pesto. Like they, they made a big deal out of this I pesto, though. Like 50% of the pitch was the pesto. So. I'm going to give my golden bite this week to the pesto tort. It sounds really good. <laughs> sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. So as we talked about, no deal, right? Uninvestable, not investable company. Womp womp. They walked away with no deal. But after airing, they were able to purchase a second boat oh. and they did continue their wine tours for a time. For a short stint, yeah. For a stint. <laughs> Unfortunately, the business did begin to tank and they closed it down. Right. Aww. So Corks Away sort of did like a, a pivot and a rebrand. And they're currently planning to build an ecotourism business in El Salvador with what? these two boats. So, <laughs> yep, no shortage of ideas, right? They are just trying to get that bag, get that oh, money. So okay. if you're going to El Salvador anytime soon and you want to form a booze cruise that's turning into ecotourism, great company. <laughs> All right. Well, it is time for my favorite part of the episode, and that is awarding the golden bite. Although I feel like we should have something that is nautical themed this time. So maybe it's like the golden pearl, the golden seashell, uh, the golden treasure chest. Oh, I like right? that. Because like sunken yeah. treasure. We love that. Mm. John, what's your golden bite? I'm going to give it to the animated lore. I think I've failed at raising fish. Maybe I should buy some on Amazon, put them in my fish tank. Let us know how it goes. Test the product. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. So who are you giving your golden doubloon to, Ariel? Ooh. Well, you know, I – this one's kind of tough for me. It's uh, tough. I'm not going to lie. Like, I really did like the concept with quirks away, just not the founders and the sporadic, <laughs> you know. Literally ideas. any part of their business plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just like the concept of a booze cruise, I guess. <laughs> we just need to go on one of those. Yeah. It's, it'll be fun. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I think I'm going to have to copy John 
And Mm -hmm. I do think animated lore, I would give my golden doubloon too. Okay, I will say I did like Long Wharf. Mm -hmm. I'm a sucker for a good fisherman's sweater. Yes. I think they have a lot to figure out in terms of like if they're trying to scale. I don't think there's necessarily like a problem with remaining premium if that's what you want, just knowing that that comes with its own challenges. So the fact that they're still around, the fact that Look, if something, I'm not like John, like, I don't care if it's like saving the planet single-handedly, but it's like something, it's helping. Otherwise, I'd be getting like a sweater made of like pseudoplastics, right? So comparatively, I think it's fine. Maybe it's because I'd probably buy one of those. Yeah. Hopefully on sale. Uh, (laughs) Then, yeah, I guess Long Wharf gets my my golden bite or my golden doubloon. Today's episode was written and produced by my favorite human being, Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero and editing from Robert Hartwig. Have you subscribed to the show yet? I mean, of course you have. You wouldn't listen all the way through like this and not be subscribed already, right? Right? Yeah, I knew you would be because you're my favorite subscriber. Okay, that does it for me. See you next week in the tank for another bite.